Our Heavenly Father, we're reminded of the fact that when you sent your Son into this world, you sent him to a desolate part of the earth that was not open to receiving him, a place that had been preparing for him for thousands of years, but a place in the end that rejected him for the most part. And as we have this meeting today and we talk about evangelism, we talk about the Middle East and we talk about that part of the world that still is very difficult to reach today, I just pray that you would give us your spirit here in this room. Because I know that Jesus and you, the Father, are still passionate about the entire planet, including that part of the world. We pray that you would be with us here. We thank you for this opportunity to share in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to begin with uh, an illustration. Some of you may have heard this before, but I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. I just want to do it as an illustration, and then I'll go into the subject matter for today. I've been asked to talk about evangelism, and some of you may wonder what archaeology has to do with evangelism. It seems maybe a little strange to have an archaeology meeting at an ASI meeting, uh, but I hope by the end of the presentation you will understand the relationship. And... uh, I grew up in Berrien Springs, Michigan, and my relatives on my mother's side of the family are all contractors and builders, and I grew up framing houses. Um, When I was very young, I remember sitting on the roof of my next-door neighbor, which was my uncle, uh, the roof of his house, helping to uh, put shingles on that house at a very young age. It was exciting work, and later on when I was in high school, Um, I framed houses during the summer until I got into archaeology and that kind of destroyed the housing business for me because when you're in archaeology, you're into destruction, not construction. And so uh, it was a little different. But I I did that for a number of years and I want to use that as an illustration. You know, in this part of the world where we live here in the United States, um, we build houses a little differently than many other parts of the world. We we build on a, on a solid foundation usually. We, we, we sink in, you know, some, we, we dig trenches, uh, footers. Uh, we, we put in, uh, either pour in cement or we build with block. And then on top of that, we build a structure. That structure is going to stand or fall based on what? Based on that foundation. That foundation is the key to everything else that is on top of that. Now, the problem with framing houses is, that you, you see this stage and you see the other stages and you see a lot of progress pretty fast, as you know, those of you who have been in the business, you see progress pretty fast, but then you leave and go to the next project and you never see the finished project unless it's across the street like this is. And you never get to go inside. But, but you see the skeleton, so to speak, of the building. I would like to suggest that today, and I want to make this analogy, that the Bible is our foundation for life. Not only for life, but for the church. And not only for the church, but for evangelism and for everything else that we do as Christians. The Bible in academia, the Bible in our world, the Bible in our everyday life should be the foundation. I don't know that it always is, but that it should be. Isn't that true? And the Bible as its foundation gives us 
And I want to use this analogy. Not all analogies work all the time perfectly, but I want to use this analogy. It gives us a framework of history. It doesn't give us all the details of that history. It doesn't give us all the intricacies of what took place. I sometimes wish that there would be more detail in certain stories of the Bible. Do you wish that when you read sometimes? That there would be a little bit more there that we could dig into, no pun intended. Um, And so what we try to do when we read the Bible is is we, we look at the big picture. Sometimes it's nice to buy a chronological Bible and you can kind of read it through chronologically because the Bible isn't always written in a chronological order. But the Bible provides that kind of framework for history. Frameworks are important. And in history, it's extremely important to know where you are in history, to know how that outline works in history. Now, I've put this up. This is kind of my creation. There's a lot of things maybe left out here, and maybe the the periods are not quite there. But I've put up different... different, pillars here, if you can see, and these pillars are periods of history that uh, occur in Scripture uh, leading down to the time of Christ. The reason the cross is not center, it's not because the cross isn't center, it will be center in another illustration in a moment, it's because if you look at the Bible, the Bible, its history is not quite, uh, the history of the Bible doesn't have the cross at its complete center, right? There's more Old Testament than there is New Testament, is that correct? There's more books in the Old Testament than New Testament books. And the New Testament period can be summarized pretty much in in 100 years, whereas the Old Testament goes back thousands of years. And so you have kind of this skewed picture a little bit as you look at history. But certainly as we look at this, um, there is is a a, a structure, if you will. And, And to use the analogy perhaps a little bit more, this structure provides the skeleton, the framework, if you will, for the rest of history that has taken part within uh, those periods of time. Now, the Bible is not a static kind of thing. It's not simply a, a piece of liturgy that has been written or a piece of philosophy or books of philosophy that have been written. The Bible is constituted in history, and therefore it is important that history is part of it. And the, the, the thrust, if you will... The thrust of the Bible, which is the story of redemption, is the ultimate consummation of what? It's not simply to tell us about history, but it is to tell us about God's acts in history, and it is to give us a promise that someday there will be a new history that will be created. Not a history that focuses on this world, but in a new world that God is planning to create in the future. So, Again, the analogy may not work completely, but in my mind, the roof, the, the thing that everything is, is supporting is this, this ultimate goal of an everlasting kingdom. In Daniel chapter 2, it is, it is a rock cut out without hands that comes and smites the image, which represents human history, and then a mountain is established that what? Lasts forever, right? So that is the, the thrust of what Scripture is giving us. And in this sense, history or that is the concept of history in Scripture, is not a cyclical idea. Now, if you look at Eastern religions, many times they have a cyclical concept of history, that, that things always repeat themselves, you know, that, that you kind of have this, this cycle of events. And certainly we can see that history does sometimes repeat itself and that we don't always learn from history. But in the biblical perspective, there is a thrust moving forward through time. That thrust moving forward through time, 
is focusing on a consummation uh, after the fall that is, that is real and that is something that we all look forward to. Now, the Bible also describes a God who works within that continuity of time. In other words, that God has placed himself within the framework of time by sending his son, Jesus Christ, certainly. But even before that time, God has been working in human history in time. Would you agree with that? In other words, he works in our lives today, but he has worked in ancient times as well. With the first act of creation, God spoke things into existence, and that happened at a particular time. He, he set time in motion in creation so that there were 24-hour days and a period of seven days. And on the seventh day, what did he do? He rested, right? And he celebrated the Sabbath with his creation. That concept of God acting in history is extremely important because it ultimately resulted in the sending of his own son. And if you want to really think about it, that event bisects time for all intent and purposes. It it bisects time completely. We still reckon B.C. and A.D. today based on what? Based on the cross. And whether you're a Christian or a, a Jew, they do not like to refer to B.C. and A.D. They don't like to say before Christ and Anno Domini. So they say B.C.E. and C.E., before the Common Era and the Common Era, but it still refers to the same thing. The Common Era according to what? According to the cross. So I have to be very careful in scholarly circles. I don't talk about B.C. and A.D. I talk about B.C.E. and and, and CE, because this is the politically correct thing to do, but ultimately we're talking about the same division, the same thing. And God still continues to work through history and continues to work out his plan. So this is the biblical concept, and this concept is a real concept. But the fact is that this concept has been under tremendous attack for the last 200 years or more. The idea of God's work in history and that God acted in history, the idea that the Bible is God's word has been something that is very much challenged. We can only think of the French Revolution, and we can think of the resulting uh, philosophies that came out of that experience, or that led up to that experience, and eventually came out of that experience as well. The Bible was trampled on the ground The Bible was scorned and put aside. Religion was put aside, and a new religion was established, the religion of reason. Man's autonomous reason became the critical point upon which everything uh, uh, surrounded itself and everything worked. So no longer was the Bible the focus of human history and human thinking, It had changed. It had shifted dramatically in the age of the Enlightenment, in the age of reason, and now we are in a different age for the past 200 or more years. And so as we see the results of that, what has happened? What has happened is a a general rewriting of biblical history over time. In the Mid-1800s, it was creation and the flood, Genesis 1 through 11, that became very much a focal point with a number of scholarly writings in England and other parts of the world that began to challenge the biblical concept of creation and the flood. And basically, that idea was removed 
from history. Now, when you remove creation and the flood, particularly creation, it is the foundation of everything that comes after it, isn't it? You remove, start removing a lot. There's other things that fall with creation. Uh, And we don't have time to go into it too far today, but of course we can talk about the Sabbath. That's a very obvious one. But there are some that are not so obvious. What about the institution of marriage? That's instituted at creation. That is a creation order institution. And we see what's happening with that today. What about the institution of... um, Well, what about the idea of sin, the origin of sin, the fall? That all happened within the first 11 chapters of Genesis. So if you no longer have a creation, a perfect creation, what happens to the concept of the fall? And if you don't really have a fall, if Adam and Eve are simply the process of 600 million years of evolution, then what happens at the end of that process? Uh, There's all kinds of questions that that comes with that. Um, Adam and Eve, 600 million years in that process. Okay, so what do you do with death before sin? Millions of years of death before sin, and species after species is evolving. What do you do with that concept? What happens when Paul says the wages of sin is death? that there was one Adam and Jesus Christ is the second Adam. What, what happens with that if, in some circles, Adam is no longer even a historical figure? And when I say some circles, I'm talking about evangelical circles. Two years ago, we were at the evangelical theological meetings in Baltimore, and there was a big panel on the historicity of Adam and Eve. Out of five panelists, three argued that Adam and Eve were not historical figures. In evangelical circles. By the way, these evangelical scholars sign a document to be a member of this society that says, I believe in the infallibility of scripture. Okay? So this is happening in conservative Christianity today. So there's other things that happen as a result of this, because if you don't have death as the result of sin, then what happens to the cross? Why does Jesus need to come to die on the cross? He doesn't have to pay the wages of death anymore, of sin, I should say. And so there's a huge issue. There have been several dissertations written on this, both by evangelical scholars and Adventist scholars. I'm not saying something new here at all. Christianity becomes into question. Of course, the second coming comes into question because if you don't really believe in the first creation, how are you going to believe in a second creation? Is God going to take 600 million years to do it again? What does it mean when Paul says, in the twinkling of an eye, we shall be changed? So all of these things, and it's very interesting, you look at mainstream denominations that have given up a belief in creation, what happens? They don't really, many of them, believe in a second coming anymore. The kingdom of God is something that happens here on earth. So there's an, an issue there as well. You can see what happens very quickly when some of these things are taken. The everlasting kingdom concept disappears, and pretty soon you have uh, the Bible and biblical history, but the Bible without its foundation simply changes. In the 1970s, two books came out in 1973 and 1974, almost simultaneously uh, challenging the patriarchal period. And with the publication of those books, most scholars rejected the patriarchs as a period of history. 
in the 1980s, uh, the next decade, it was the period of the Exodus and the sojourn in Egypt and the whole concept of Moses. That was challenged already in 1977. It had been challenged by German scholars earlier. I'm talking about the United States now. And uh, that came under serious attack. And by the end of the 1980s, that had been pretty much rejected in history as history. Today, the battle for the last 20 years has been over the United Monarchy. And we're going to spend some time on that. But in postmodern scholarship, that has already been dismissed. And really what you're dealing with, that's what's left. Now, if you think I'm exaggerating, listen to this book. This is a maybe a mo- bigger exaggeration. This is from a, bibli- a biblical scholar from Europe, writing in 1997. All the scholars in this volume, by the way, this is a collected volume of eight scholars, they all agree, basically, that a history of Israel is not possible to write anymore in the postmodern world that we live. Uh, because postmodernism, you can't arrive at any true history. You have multiple histories that can be written. And Hans Barstad writes this, if historical or verifiable truth should be our only concern, the history of Israel should not only be very short, written on 10 pages or so, but it would also be utterly boring. So you've just reduced the entire Old Testament to 10 pages. That's what scholars are doing today. Now, this is extreme scholarship, but this is the direction that things are going. So what do we do with this house? What do we do with this model? What do we do with the biblical concept of history and its reality? Another question could be asked, do historical matters matter to faith? Or does it simply depend on what you believe and what I believe and it can be somewhat different and that's okay? Do historical matters matter to faith? This book was just published uh, two years ago by a number of evangelical scholars and I have an article in this volume as well because they're concerned about these trends that are taking place in the world around us and particularly within evangelical Christian circles because some are even saying in those circles it doesn't really matter anymore. This is what G. Ernest Wright of Harvard University said some years ago. He was a professor of archaeology and theology at Harvard Divinity School, and he wrote, The Bible, unlike the other religious literature of the world, is not centered on a series of moral, spiritual, and liturgical teachings, but in the story of a people who lived at a certain time and place. Faith was communicated, in other words, through the forms of history, and unless history is taken seriously, one cannot comprehend biblical faith, which triumphantly affirms the meaning of history. What Wright is saying is that, and he wrote a very famous uh, theological book entitled The God Who Acts, what he is saying is the Bible believes, the Bible is constituted in history, and the biblical writers believe that there is a God who acts in history. And if you divorce the Bible from history, the Bible becomes something very different from what it says it is. So let's talk today a little bit about the monarchy and that period of history. We could talk about a lot of different things today, but I want to focus a little bit on that period. When we first started working in this part of the world, um, as, as, uh, uh, when we first started directing an excavation in this part of the world at Southern Adventist University, it was a site that had to do specifically with the battle over King David. We're talking about the United Monarchy, the golden age of biblical history. David and Solomon is the golden age of that, of that period. 
Um, a few months after we started working at Kirbet Kayafa, a site that is, was co-directed by Southern and by the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, this cover story came out on National Geographic in December of 2010. The Search for King David, New Discoveries in the Holy Land. And this uh, article dealt with our site because we received National Geographic funding for our project, and it also dealt with uh, another project in Jordan that was also being worked at by the University of California at San Diego. And uh, dealing with these issues of the historicity of David and Solomon. And uh, one of the quotes that was very interesting in this article was, if you take David and his kingdom out of the book, you have a different book. The narrative is no longer a historical work, but a work of fiction. I would go even further than that and say, if you take David out of the Bible, what is really left? Well, you have a lot that's left, but who was David? Without David, you wouldn't have over 70 of the Psalms that we still sing and repeat in, in, in various contexts in synagogues and churches around the world. Without David, you would have no capital of Jerusalem because he conquered Jerusalem and it still is a capital today. I just came back from Jerusalem last Friday, this past Friday, a few days ago. Um, without David, you would have no United Kingdom. There would be no Solomon. There would be no temple. Without David, there would be no Messiah because it's through the line of David that the Messiah is promised. And there are attempts today to erase David and Solomon from history. In fact, this article and this volume, uh, this issue talks about it in quite some stark detail. In fact, there's one quote in this article by a colleague of mine from Tel Aviv University that goes so far as to say, I have killed Solomon, as if you can do that 2,000 years or 3,000 years, in the fact, after he lived. So there's a lot of things happening today in scholarship that is very interesting indeed, and it was a privilege to be part of this project. Um, Southern Adventist University actually should be in the middle here. The Hebrew University was the primary sponsor of this project at Kirbet Kayafa. We worked with the Israel Antiquities Authority, the Israel Exploration Society, and we were very thankful for funding from ASI during this period of of work and uh, several other entities that you can see here as well. ASI has been a wonderful blessing over the years to us. Kirbet Kayafa is a small garrison fort located in the Elah Valley, overlooking the Elah Valley, where the famous battle between David and Goliath took place. And I've lectured about this in other places, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about it today, but I want to uh, simply focus and tell a few stories that came out of this project more recently that is interesting. Why is this such an important site um, in the scope of the United Monarchy? The claim had been made that there were no monumental fortifications during this time. The claim had been made that there was no evidence for the intrigues between the Philistines and the Israelites that the Bible talks about. The claim had been made that there was no evidence for David and Saul um, outside of the Bible, um, at least for their exploits and their, and their uh, extensive kingdom. The claim had been made that there was no uh, evidence for extensive literacy during this time. In other words, people couldn't really read and write very much, and so the Bible wasn't probably written during this time. It was written hundreds of years later uh, during the, some scholars would go so far as to say, during the time of Alexander the Great in the third, millennia, third century B.C., um, and, and that Jerusalem was just a little hinterland uh, place with with a, a little tent village with a little hinterland behind it. There was no extensive 
kingdom of Judah that is talked about as is talked about in the biblical record. So these are some of the claims, and these claims were published in popular press and made headlines all over the world because, again, when you challenge the Bible, that makes headlines today, doesn't it? So this is what what was happening in the 1990s, late 1990s, as we were working, uh, and I'm sorry, into the, into the early part of the 21st millennium, 21st century as well. Now, what we found here at the site, though, was incredible. We found a majorly fortified city. You can see the double walls surrounding it. You can see this over here, these double walls. There's a gate over here on this side, another gate on that side, the walls surrounding the entire site. We have uh, a major fortified city. Here is uh, my wife's artistic reconstruction of the inside of that city looking out, the, the gatehouse there with some of the towers. Um, you can see the houses that were abutting the double casemate walls inside and just beautiful architecture, very, very nicely preserved. All of this was not supposed to be there during the 10th century, during the time of Saul and David. Now, this site, though dated to that time period, based on all the ceramics that we found, hundreds of restorable vessels on the floors of the destruction in the 10th century BC, the time of David and Saul, based on radiocarbon dates from Oxford University and many other uh, uh, things we can talk about. The architecture is typical Judean, not Philistine or Canaanite. It's, wooden, it's stone architecture, the casemate double walls. You don't have those at other kinds of sites. And so this made quite a sensation uh, in the field of archaeology, particularly in Israel and around the world, this uh, project. Here I'm standing with my co-director, Yossi Garfinkel, uh, who's standing on the other side. We're wearing the same t-shirts, by the way. You can see that. Those are the Kirbet Kayaf excavations. Standing in the middle is a professor from Tel Aviv University who wrote all the things I just described to you. No evidence, no evidence, no evidence, no evidence, no evidence, right? His name is Israel Finkelstein. He's a very well-known archaeologist and a very good archaeologist, but he doesn't believe that there was a Saul, I'm sorry, that he doesn't believe that there was a Solomon. In fact, he's the one that said in National Geographic, he killed Solomon. So we're standing with him in the middle. Notice that we're both smiling, I don't think he is. You see what we have on our T-shirts? That's a Hebrew inscription that was found in 2008 at the site just inside the city gate. That inscription is the oldest Hebrew inscription ever found in history. A thousand years older than the Dead Sea Scrolls. It's now in the Israel Museum. I saw it there just a week and a half ago. Here it is, close-up drawing of it. See the letter A that's sideways right in the corner up there? I could go off on the inscription. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on the inscription. You can read about it elsewhere. When that inscription was found, it was in the New York Times. It was all over in the media. It was a big deal. I was doing evangelistic meetings with Mark Finley in Orlando, Florida, when this was found in October. still remember the date, October 30. This inscription was the second top story on CNN.com. Why? Because it's the oldest Hebrew evidence we have in the world. And it's now in the Israel Museum because that's where it belongs. When we were at a professional meeting, and um, Dr. Beetz, I think you were there that time. Dr. Beetz, my university president, is here in the audience. 
um, in New Orleans, we were presenting this, this uh, artifact for the first time to the scholarly community. Sometimes there's a delay when something gets published, and it had been a year since that uh, find had come to light, and a full publication had not been made yet. But we had a room about this size at the hotel there in New Orleans. I think it was actually a little bit larger, and it was packed with people. I don't know how many people we had there that day, but most of the senior archaeologists in the field were there. This was the American Schools of Oriental Research, the major uh, research organization and uh, professional society in our discipline. And we presented, we had two sessions, and we presented Kirbat Kayafa, and it was an amazing thing to be part of. When this inscription was presented, it was also quite amazing. You could hear a pin drop. Everybody was at the edge of their seats wanting to know what it said. No, it didn't mention David. And we don't know exactly what it says because you see a lot of the letters are not legible any longer. But we do know that it is some kind of an injunction. It begins with, do not do. And then it continues. There's five lines of writing. It continues. And depending on which scholar, there have been many articles written about it, many different ideas about what it says. One scholar believes it actually refers to the establishment of kingship in ancient Israel because king is mentioned here, even though the king's name is not mentioned. Um, There's several important words here. At any rate, I just want to mention what happened in the question-and-answer period after the first session when this was presented. I was the moderator, and we had a panel sitting in the front just like this, only in this case the seats are empty, and other co-directors were sitting in these seats, and the first question in the back was this. Why are you attributing your site to the time of David and the story of David and Goliath? We know that story wasn't written until 700 years later. How can you claim to have a site that dates to that time period when that story didn't even occur back then? Now, I tell you, when you're in professional meetings, it's always the scariest part is the question-answer time. And I was thankful I was the moderator and I didn't have to answer the question. So I turned to, to the, the panel And my colleague, Yossi Garfinkel, uh, said, how do you know when the biblical account was written? You could hear a pin drop. It's a good tactic, you know, to ask a question back to a question, right? (laughs) How do you know when the biblical account was written? So the scholar responded. He says, "I've I've read many books and many articles. This is the consensus, and I have written some of those articles myself. And then Yossi said, and how do they know when it was written? Silence. There was no response the second time. You see, what was being challenged in that room that day was the entire consensus of historical critical scholarship for the last 200 years. And it was being challenged by a professor from the Hebrew University, the Yigil Yadin professor, who holds the oldest chair in archaeology in the country of Israel at the most prestigious university in that, inst- in that country. When, they, when, they, when, when there was no answer to the question, Professor Garfinkel continued, and he says, well, he says, I can tell you this. My wife is a professor at the Free University in Berlin. 
She's a professor of Judaic studies, and she studies early rabbinical literature, and she can tell you what the early rabbis and rabbinical tradition was in the first century, and the second century, and the third century, and the fourth century. We can trace the development of rabbinical thought in early Judaism. We don't have that for the Bible. What we have is the final text that we have today. So we don't know, really, when it was written. And then he said this, but to rely on hypotheses that are 200 years old and ignore new data that has just come out of the field doesn't seem to make sense either. I'm an archaeologist, I'm a scientist, he says, and we need to deal with new data that's coming from the field. You could hear a pin drop in the room. And then, one after another, other people, I mean, a sea of hands went up, other people raised their hands, and after that, every comment was positive. Very positive. Wonderful. I mean, we're, we, we were talking about the major directors of excavations in Israel currently. Aaron Meyer got up and he says, this is definitely not a Philistine site. I excavate the Philistine site of Gath. And by the way, maybe some of you saw the headlines. They just found the gate at Gath this summer, just a few weeks ago, and it's in the headlines right now as we speak. Um, I think it's called Goliath's Gate was found at Gath, but it wasn't Goliath's Gate. It's just the gate at Gath that was found. At any rate... He says, I dig a Philistine site. I can tell you the material at Kayafa is not Philistine because that's what some of the critics had already been saying. And one after another, it was an amazing experience. A couple of years ago, we had another session, an- another double session at the professional meetings. And afterwards, uh, Larry Steger from Harvard University came to me afterwards. And he says, Michael, he says, I understand that you guys are leaving Kayafa and going to a new site, the site of Lachish. And I said, yes. He says, why are you leaving? And I said, well, I said, um, we've excavated 30% of the site. We have uh, uh, 30% of the site is exposed bedrock. There's nothing to excavate there. And we think we have done a lot in seven years at the site, and it's time to move on. He says, well, I can understand that, he says, but you should know that you've done more at Kayafa in the last five years in revolutionizing the concept of the United Monarchy than we've done in archaeology in the last 25 years. And I think he was right. I think he was right. I think that's true. And I praise the Lord for that. You know, you never know when you start an excavation project what you're going to find. It's not us. I mean, we're just digging. What we find is what we find, and the data is the data. And we interpret the data based on what the data is, and we have to live with whatever it is, right? In this case, we had some amazing, amazing stuff. Now, I want to draw your attention to something that just was published two months ago. This is the cover of, this, of the journal of the American Schools of Oriental Research, that same scholarly society. This is the major journal in our field. And on the cover is another inscription that was just published from Kayafa. This was found in 2012 and was published, uh, and I have the, have the actual journal here. I got it in the mail after I left for Israel. But when I arrived in Israel in June, this was in the media all over the world. Fox News had an article on this. Um, Canadian News, it was, it was all over the place. It was in Israel. Why? Because on the side of a jar on the top of a jar, an incision. This is not something written in ink. This is an incision. Here you can see a close-up of it. An incision by a very skilled hand writing. This comes from 
Again, the 10th, maybe even 11th century BC, this comes from the same context as the earlier inscription that we have. By the way, this is not the second inscription, this is the fifth inscription that we have from Kirbat Kayafa. Why is that important? Because guess what, folks? There is literacy in Israel during this time. Not only that, but there is literacy not in Jerusalem, but in the fringes. This is on the border to Philistia. This is a garrison city built probably for a defense mechanism against uh, the, the, the Philistine sites that are there. But what is interesting is what it says. Are you ready? There's a name mentioned here for the first time outside of the Bible. The name is Eshbaal. Sound familiar? I know you guys read your Bibles and these names just go, right? I mean, Moses, okay. Abraham, okay. Eshbaal. Eshbaal was Saul, Saul's son. Okay? Now, the question is, of course, is this Eshbaal the son of Saul or not? That is another question. We cannot prove it. It doesn't say Eshbaal the son of Saul here. Okay? But it's the same name from a 10th century context, 11th century context, the same time. In other words, we believe, we believe after excavating the site, before this inscription was found, that we're excavating a site mentioned in 1 Samuel 17, the story of David and Goliath. It's mentioned in verse 52, the site of Sha'ariam, which means two gates, because we found two gates at the site, and gates are only usually one at these sites. Um, we believe we're, we're excavating a site that was built as a garrison city during the time of Saul and certainly continued into the time of David. So here we find this inscription. It's amazing, and it made headlines. And my colleague Yossi Garfinkel gets a telephone call after the headlines came out, and uh, the call comes from the Prime Minister of Israel's office. You have an appointment at the Prime Minister's office in 20 minutes. Come. So he's got, he says, I've got jeans on. I've got a t-shirt on. I'm not, I'm not ready to meet the Prime Minister of Israel, you know. But, uh, but he went, and here he is meeting with the Prime Minister of Israel just a few months ago. This was just before our dig started this summer. And behind him is Sar Ganor, our other co-director of the project from the Israel Antiquities Authority. And uh, very interesting indeed. There's a, if you go onto Israel, uh, the Prime Minister's website, you can actually download a little video of him discussing this. You won't understand anything. It's all in Hebrew. So, anyway. But why is this important? Because it is the history of what? Of Israel. It's the history of the Jewish people. It is the history of the Bible. You see, we share the Bible not only with ourselves. We share it with Muslims around the world. We share it with Jews around the world. It is our book. It is not only a book that is to be kept for ourselves. I was invited a few years ago to lecture at the American Jewish University in Los Angeles. It's a beautiful university located right across the highway from the Getty Institute, very famous cultural institution there that specializes in ancient art. And uh, there was a huge symposium on Solomon and David, or David and Solomon. And there were four scholars there that day uh, presenting. The first scholar was from UCLA, uh, he was a biblical scholar who talked about the biblical text and the story of Solomon. He dissected the biblical text back and forth, and when he was done with it that morning during that lecture, there was really nothing left of the biblical text. 
The next scholar that came up was from Claremont Graduate University, a scholar who had been uh, educated at Emory University, and she focused on David in Hollywood. Did you know that David was in Hollywood? Didn't know Hollywood existed back then, but anyway. Um, she looked at David in film, and she went back, I guess Cary Grant played David years ago, and I didn't know any of this, but uh, uh, all kinds of famous actors have played David during different times of, of history, and she went through and kind of did a film analysis of David in history. It was, it was interesting, you know, she, she ended, her last film clip that she showed was a VeggieTales film. You know the VeggieTales? It was, a, it was, it was uh, the, the cucumber... David the cucumber, no, no, David the, the sprig of asparagus meeting the giant cucumber, who is Goliath. And she says, now ironically, biblically, the VeggieTales version is the most biblically accurate of all the, all the Hollywood productions. And I know the, the artist, he came to Southern a few years ago who produced the VeggieTales uh, series, and I know his background and his interest in doing that. So she ended with kind of this humorous note, you know, and everybody, of course, was laughing at the silliness of Veggie Tales and so forth, and that was the end of the conversation. We had lunch. The next lecture was a gentleman who had flown all the way from Jerusalem who works for the Israel Antiquities Authority who was lecturing on the archaeological history of Jerusalem. And he started out talking about the grandiose idea of David, and he showed an image of Michelangelo's David from, from Florence that you know, and then he showed a, a smaller version of, of David done by another um, uh, Italian sculptor by the name of Verrocchio. And uh, he's much smaller. He's only, if you've ever seen the David in Florence, it's huge, you know, it's quite awe-inspiring. And then there's, there's Verrocchio. He's about this tall. And, uh, and, of course, then he says, now, what really happened with David? And then he went through his lecture. And by the time we were done, we really didn't know anything about David in Jerusalem or anywhere else for that matter. And I was the last lecturer that day. After this lineup. Four lecturers, I'm the last one. Not, not the, 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 it was the end of the day and it was the end of the, the symposium and there were about 500 people there that day. It was a huge hall and it was filled. There was one Adventist family that I know that drove two hours to be there. One of their sons is now at Southern Adventist University studying. The, other, the daughter went with us on a dig, actually, the Andrews family. And, um, and I'm, 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 I'm pacing behind the stage and praying, Lord, what do you want me to say? How am I going to handle this now? Folks, we're talking here about evangelism, right? Scholarship is not just about scholarship, it's about evangelism. When you're standing in a scholarly meeting and you have a name tag that says Southern Adventist University, it's evangelism. Amen. You're representing your school, you're representing your church, you're representing your God. Amen. So I'm pacing back there praying, what am I going to say? Professor Zioni Zevit had a wonderful introduction and uh, I got up to speak and I held up the, the issue of of National Geographic, and I read the quote from Israel Finkelstein about killing Solomon. And then I said this. I didn't have this slide, but this is what I said, so I'll illustrate what I said by showing you the slide. I said, today we've gone from the magnificent concept of Michelangelo's David, which is larger than life, to Verrocchio's concept of David, which was 
him as a boy and a little diminutive, much smaller, to David as a sprig of asparagus meeting a giant cucumber, and everybody laughed, because that was still the, you know, that was still the mood that was there from the morning, you know? And then I said, however, in the middle of these concepts of David, there is a real David that existed in history, and that David is important for every single person in this room, because it is not only about a David who may have existed or didn't exist, it is about our history. It is about who we are. It is about what we are today and what we have become today. And I want to talk to you about that David today. And what I'm sharing with you today, I said, is simply 12 points of a site, a new site that we've been excavating for the last few years that we believe gives new data to the question of David. And I want, to share with that with you. I want to share that with you today. And I went through the 12 points of a lecture on that particular, particular uh, day um, on Kirbet Kayafa. And when I ended, I re- reaffirmed that. I said, I said, look, I says, we've been talking here about David and Solomon. I said, this is not only a question of history. This is a question of identity. And I said, it's important. It's important for all of us. We all came out here wanting to hear something. And we're all going to leave this place. You know, my colleagues were sitting in the front row and were listening to what I was sharing after they shared. And afterwards, there was a question-answer period when all four of us were on stage. Afterwards, I had a crowd of people around me. And I remember this old man with a kippah on his head a Jewish businessman who had come to the meetings, and I remember him firmly grasping my hand with both of his hands as tightly as he could. And he said, thank you for sharing what you shared today. This is what I came here to hear. People out there are searching and looking for identity. All of us are looking for identity. And archaeology has a way of, of in, a, in a non-threatening way, of revealing something about the Bible. That is a wonderful thing. About a year, year and a half ago, I had an invitation to speak at Emory University on the subject of Kirbat Kayafa for the Michael Carlos Museum. And it's interesting because just the year before, Ben Carson had been invited to be the keynote graduation speaker at the same institution. Maybe some of you heard about that. And he was uh, almost... Well, I can't remember what the outcome was, but he was, there was a huge protest at Emory because of his belief in creation, if you remember that, 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 that episode in his life. Ben Carson speaks at many graduation services and so forth. But uh, so here I was again at this university. The guy who had invited me, Professor Oded Borowski, is an old friend that I've known for 20 years, but he was gone that weekend. And the person that introduced me was a minimalist scholar who had just written a new book on David with Cambridge University Press. And he did not believe what we believe about David. So he introduced me. It was a very nice introduction. And I spoke to a public audience there from Atlanta and from students from the university and faculty members from the Chandler School of Theology and others as well. And uh, I basically gave a very similar talk as I gave at the American Jewish University in Los Angeles.
And um, after I was done, the professor said to me, Professor Wright said to me, um, now, how do you know it's really Judean? I just went through 12 points explaining why it was Judean, by the way. You mean right from Harvard? I had gone through 12 points describing why the site was Judean and why it was important for early Judah. So his first question, which was the first question asked afterwards, was why is it Judean? Now, now, now when you're in a scholarly setting and that kind of question is asked, you know, you know what, what is actually being asked. I don't believe a thing you've just said for the last hour and 15 minutes. Okay. So, I, I, you know, how do you respond? So I said, well, I said, I, I've just gone over 12 points that uh, expressed why I thought it was Judean, why we think it's Judean. We're excavating the site, and these are the reasons why. Um, why do you think it's not Judean? Well, I just think it's hard to, to put it into a context of, you know, I mean, maybe it was just an, an independent polity out there by itself. Somebody built it. I said, okay. I said, do you believe that Philistia existed back then? Yes, absolutely. I said, there are five Philistine cities mentioned in the Bible. I said, they're, they're all there, right? Yes. Do you believe that they were occupied by the Philistines? Yes. I said, good, because I excavated two of them, and I think so too. He says, well, he says, uh, yeah, they're, they're definitely. I says, what independent polity would place a little garrison fort a few kilometers away from the largest Philistine cities by itself without being backed up by a bigger entity like Jerusalem further away? Why would you do that? Sounds like a suicidal act to me. I didn't say this last part, by the way. It was a little bit... <clears throat> I was thinking that part. So one of his students then asked, why, Professor, why, why do you think, not to me, but to him, why do you think it was an independent polity? What evidence is there for that? Didn't have any. You see... It has to be anything but what the Bible says. It has to be anything but, but that. It's just not popular to be that. We had a nice exchange afterwards, and we left on very friendly terms. He actually wanted to send some of his students up to Southern to uh, study ceramic typology since they don't offer that at Emory, and I said, sure, and I'm offering that this fall, so I need to contact again, him again and see if, if he's still up for that particular possibility. Now, I'm sharing all of this because, again, one sphere of evangelism that we're talking about here is the sphere of the scholarly world and the sphere of, of that world, which is, which is a big one and I think is an important one. Um, we just published this volume. I brought a copy of it with me here today. It's a 700-page volume, volume two of our Kirbet Kayafa series, The Final Report. Forty contributors. It took two and a half years of work to produce, and we produced the whole thing at Southern, and um, Southern is on here, and our names are on here and in here, and a number of faculty members from the computing department, 
from different departments are in here as well. Students, our students have published in here as well. And that is now being distributed um, all around um, different libraries around the world. This is the official scientific report. Um, volume two. Volume two of one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. So when I come here and give a presentation at ASI, just giving you a little taste of things, okay? For every season that we spend in the field, six weeks, we've got at least a year to two years of publishing the results. And when I say at least two to th two, one to two years, I'm not talking about, you know, I teach during the year. We're talking about a lot of work, a lot of people putting full-time work into analyzing the finds. This is, this is scientific work. This is not simply going and digging and leaving. The easy part is the dig. And I say that with a little bit of reluctance because I just came back from one on Friday and we get up at 4 in the morning and we work until 10, 11 at night. So when I say the easy part, I'm exhausted right now. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm still suffering from jet lag. It's three more hours you know, coming this direction than, than, than I had um, to get over this weekend. Uh, so it, it's, it's hard work. It's pulling together a team. It's, it's, it's very difficult work. But the end result is new data that will provide new evidence to look at these major questions that we're facing today. This volume, by the way, the amount of work, I'm not including my salary, I get paid to teach at Southern, I don't get paid to do this, but the amount that went into that one volume is $50,000. So 20000 just to publish it, and all the other experts that had to be paid in order to process the different types of material. All of these volumes, by the way, are in various uh, stages of publication and preparation right now. Uh, volume 5, The Coins, is finished and is in galley proofs right now. Volume, um, volume 7, The Stone Tools Analysis, has been finished by a PhD student at the Hebrew University and is, is uh, ready to go into uh, editing mode right now. And, Volume 6 on Iron Age ceramics is uh, almost done at this current time, so we're working on various aspects of this, and this is in addition to all the other work that we do. The popular book that came out in Hebrew a couple of years ago and, and was sold out within just a year, Finding King David in the Elah Valleys in the process of being translated into English and being updated with the latest information from the 2000, through the 2013 season when we finished excavating this project. Now, the reason I bring all this up is because when we do these things, when we publish these reports, we're putting literature at major universities all over the world. Now, you know, you look at archaeology and history and you say, okay, that's Kirbet Kayafa. But what about all the other things that have been found? I can't, don't have time today to go through them all. But there are people, there are places, there are events that archaeology is constantly un raveling, uncovering, and looking at. Here are a few very famous ones. This is the famous Tel Dan Stila that mentions David outside of the Bible for the first time in history. It was found in 1993, and for many of us in this room, that wasn't that long ago. 1993 by Avraham Biran at Tel Dan. And there are seals and seal impressions. Here's a seal impression that was just found recently and excavations in Jerusalem. When I say recently, in the last six years. Uh, actually, in the last 
a little longer than that, 2008, time goes by. In August 2008, Elat Mazar in the city of David in Jerusalem finds this seal that mentions Gedaliah, the son of Pasher. Who was Gedaliah? Jeremiah 38, verse 1, and Shephatiah, the son of Matan, and Gedaliah, the son of Pasher, and Yukal, the son of Shelemiah, and Pasher, the son of Malchiah, heard the words that Jeremiah spoke to all the people. So here we have a seal impression of their personal seal. These people existed. This was a real person during the time of Jeremiah that heard the words of the prophet. Are people still hearing the words of our prophetic movement today? Here is another one, uh, also found during the same season of excavation. This is Yukal, the son of Shalmiah. Another person in the very same verse, can you believe it? Found in the same excavation project the same year. Okay? I won't read the text again. It's, it's there, okay? So you call the son of Shelemiah. I've worked on a book during my sabbatical this last uh, semester. I'm not done with it yet. I'm tired of people asking me, what about this person and what about that person? Why haven't we found evidence for this person? Why haven't we found evidence of that person? I'm tired of negative questions. So I decided to give some positive answers. There are 101 individuals of Scripture that we have found evidence for through archaeology. I like the number 101. I thought 100, 101. Okay, so 101. Kings and emperors, queens, military officers, court officials, scribes, servants. We don't have time to go into all. I just mentioned two of them to you a few moments ago, but we have many of them. Okay, they're there. And we're uncovering more of them as we go along. I just came back from the fourth expedition to Lachish. We're in our third season. We just finished our third season. This is the largest site in Judah. It is the second most important site in Jerusalem. I'm sorry, in Judah after Jerusalem. Jerusalem is very difficult to excavate. Um, this one is not. Nobody lives on this site like they do in Jerusalem. And so we can easily go there. This is a project, again, with my colleague Yossi Garfinkel and with my colleague from Southern Adventist University, Martin Klingbeil. Uh, this is a fully co-sponsored project between Southern and the Hebrew University. The Israel Antiquities Authority were affiliated with ASOR, the American Schools of Oriental Research, and the National Parks Authority because Lachish is a national park. It's mentioned 24 times in the Old Testament. If you want more information, listen to my ASI presentation two years ago. We have a number of consortium institutions that have joined us because uh, this is a big project. It's not a small project. We had 120 people in the field this year. It was the largest project in Israel, probably the largest project in the Middle East the last two seasons. Um, IS in the Philippines, Bogenhofen Seminary, Helderberg College, Adventist University of Bolivia, UNASPI in Brazil, our university in Brazil, and several other universities that have joined us as well. Um, Seoul Jiangsing University is a Christian University in Seoul, Korea. Lachish uh, is a guardian city guarding, guarding the passes up to Jerusalem, just as Kirbat Kayafa was much earlier in the 10th century. You can see Kirbat Kayafa there. And uh, in ancient times, it was a very well-fortified city, as we have been uncovering today. We are using high-tech technology to remap the entire site. We're working in three different areas. You can see on the northeastern uh, quadrant of the site, we could excavate there for the next 700 years. It's a huge tell with a huge amount of work to be done. But uh, we have a five-year plan for this project, and this was our third season. We are using, again, very high-tech equipment. This is our drone. 
that we take aerial photos with. Unfortunately, it crashed two weeks ago and was uh, <clears throat> lost permanently, let's just put it that way. It flew off a mile away and luckily landed in a vineyard. Um, didn't destroy anybody's grapes, for sure. Um, so we need to uh, work on, on that project in the future. <laughs> um, we're using high-tech equipment to uh, do photogrammetry, to map out uh, the excavation areas as well. And all of this is very important. We are at the cutting edge at this project of high-tech cyber archaeology. We had a uh, accreditation, if you want to call it, visit from the American Schools of Oriental Research, and Tom Levy from the University of California, San Diego, is, is kind of the dean of cyber archaeology, and when he saw what we were doing, he was very, very excited and very impressed. He's doing the same kind of work in Jordan on the other side of the valley. When I look at a site like this, I think about our students, and I think about the future. I'm in education because I love students, and our future is in our students. If we don't train the next generation, we're, we're, we're losing out. This is the destruction of Sennacherib, and these are two students from Brazil, both theology students, and uh, the one on the right, an archaeology student at Southern Adventist University. And uh, here you have my co-director, uh, Dr. Martin Klingbeil, and my 14-year-old daughter, who was the main point person for some of the work that needed to be done there, all the paperwork and that kind of thing. We can go through student after student after student. They all have bright futures, and we need to invest in them as time goes on for sure. Here's Judith holding up a little dipper juglet, tiny little thing, probably for perfumes or precious ointments, and a basalt grinding stone. She's a theology and archaeology student at Southern as well. Last summer, an amazing discovery was made, and this is going to be edited because it's not been published yet, but you're the first to hear it. Um, these, this young man and uh, Aaron Tridel, one of our archaeology students, uh, uncovered this little dipper juglet. Inside the dipper juglet, when we began to excavate inside, was found a small little seal impression, like the ones we just saw from Jerusalem. And you can see, we, this is a picture taken right out in the field. You can, we could read it right out in the field, beautifully preserved. Here's a professional shot afterwards. You can see the Hebrew on top. And you can see the two gazelles or deer facing each other and lapping water in the center uh, register. And then you can see Hebrew at the bottom again. These are pieces of mud stuck on papyrus, uh, stuck on string. You can see the string marks on the back of it on the image to your right. Um, and what does this say? Well, we didn't only find one. We found two from the very same seal. So these are seal impressions. Here is the artist's redrawing uh, of this, very nicely drawn for us. As we go to these sites and as we look, we uncover the destructions of ancient cities. Each of these destructions are fulfillments of prophecies that were made many years ago. The prophecies of Habakkuk that Babylon would come and destroy Jerusalem, the prophecy of Isaiah that the Assyrians would come against the city, and the cities of Judah, all of these prophecies we see fulfilled as we excavate these sites in the archaeological record. And as we dump the remains of the dirt uh, on our dumps, we have to remind ourselves that there will come a time when everything that we have worked for here as well will be in ruins, right? Everything here, this convention center is going to be gone someday. It's not going to be here. And I think that day is coming very, very soon. 
prophecy as it was fulfilled in the past will be fulfilled in the future. And the question is, how are we going to how are we going to accomplish the things that God wants us to accomplish? We were reminded of it last season when rockets were flying overhead and we had to evacuate in 2014 as the Patriot missiles intercepted them in the midair. These are pictures that we, we saw on a regular basis. We were in bunkers at night and finally evacuated the team after a week. But one thing is for certain, the Lord has given us a three angels message. That message has been, we've been told, it needs to go to the whole world. So how are we going to do that? How are we going to reach people in the 1040 window? How are we going to reach people here in Spokane? How are we going to reach people in your community where you live? Archaeology is one tool. Many, many other tools exist. I'd like to ask for your prayers. Next week, I'm heading to Simi Valley. I'm sorry, not Simi Valley, to Silicon Valley, California, Mountain View, California, for an evangelistic series. I do two of these a year usually, one with Mark Finley and one with Ron Cluzet uh, later on. And they have been amazing experiences for me as we can have conducted evangelism in different parts of the country and around the world. I just want to tell you one story as we close. Last year in Dublin, we had meetings. Mark and I had meetings uh, along with a number of other people that are here today. These are some of the meetings I wanted to talk about, but we're out of time. The Great Mission to the Cities initiative that started in 2013. We were in Dublin, where in the last 50 years, 40 converts to Adventism among the indigenous population of Ireland. 50 years of, of work in that country, 40 converts to Adventism. You can imagine how discouraging the work is there for our pastors and our work, workers in that part of the world. So we went to Dublin, Ireland with, with a mission. Archaeology, health, a seminar on finances. Um, we had also family, four seminars going on simultaneously, and then the main meetings later on. The night the meeting started, the rugby match was right down the street, the semifinals. Everybody was sure. The pastors were discouraged. They said, nobody's going to show up. Everybody was sure. This was the first time a public evangelism event by the Adventist Church has happened in the history of Ireland. Okay? So we're there. We're at a hotel. We're hoping for, for somebody to show up. As everybody is going down the street, all the cars are passing by heading for the rugby event. And we know everybody else is going to be watching it on television, right? If you don't know anything about Ireland, rugby is really big. So... So we're, we're praying that night, but lo and behold, people begin to come in. And the archaeology meetings are packed. They are absolutely packed. And it continues all through the week. And I remember at the end of the week talking to one gentleman, a, a, an anesthesiologist who, who came and talked to me afterwards, who was bringing his whole family all week long. And he says, you know, he says, I, I grew up in the church. He says, I, I grew up a Christian. But he says, I left when I was a teenager. I had major questions when I started university. He says, major questions about science and, and faith and all of these things, he said. And, but when I did my fellowship in anesthesiology, I did that at Hadassah Hospital in Israel. And I lived in Jerusalem. And as I lived in Jerusalem, he says, I was confronted with, with Jerusalem and all the history that's there and all the sites that are there. And I began to be interested again. And I saw the advertisement in the mail, and I thought I would come to these, he says, and it's been absolutely fascinating. I, I, I need to come back to church. He says, I need to come back to church. I need my family to be coming back to church. And I, he says, we need to have something that we need to do. Archaeology has a way of reaching 
those people who are interested in, in those things. Prophecy has those uh, uh, avenues as well. Um, health has avenues, of course, as well. There's many different ways. We need to find as many ways as possible to reach people in the time in which we live. But I know that God is working in a tremendous way. And I just want to end with a word of prayer as we thank him, as his word is going forth, as you are those angel messengers that are taking that message to the world. May God continue to bless us. And may he continue to receive the glory for the work that we do. Heavenly Father, we are but humble servants here. We are frail. We are fragile. Our life is short. We don't have much time, even in our own lives, let alone in the lives of, in, the, in, in this world that we have. We know we're living at the end of time. We know that you're coming soon. We see the signs all around us. We have no question that, that it, is, it is very, very near. So I, I, I pray, Lord, that as, as we've heard some of these experiences today, that hearts have been encouraged by the things that have been found that confirm your word. I, I pray that hearts would have been stirred to do something powerful for you. It's not easy working today. It's not easy to, to do the things that you have called us to do because we live in a secular world and many people don't want to hear these things. But the bottom line is everyone is searching. Everyone is looking. They want to know the truth. And they need the truth, whether they know it or not. And so we just pray, Lord, that you would open hearts, open doors, Use the group that's here, those that are listening and will be listening, to reach others for Jesus Christ and for this kingdom so that when he comes, we can be united with one another, not in this old Jerusalem, but in the new Jerusalem, which will last forever. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI, Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.asiministries.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.